It might be a car review or the nightly news, but you can smell it, right? That distinct aroma. Good thing we didn't step in it. Here's how and why the mainstream media has betrayed you. How car reviews and pretty much everything else in the mainstream media became fake news. I'm John Cadogan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Yes, for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can just click the card that's possibly up there now. Dude. Those are my favourite words. Actually, now that I think about it, they're my second favourite words, and I say them every video. My favourite words were uttered by Tiffany just this past weekend when she said, what's wrong with right here on the workbench? And I did try so hard, unsuccessfully, to prosecute a counterfactual case there. Isn't it always the way? However, my second favourite words, they serve kind of an important purpose because they liberate me from the obligation to appease car makers, to keep them sweet and thereby assure the flow of sweet, sweet advertising revenue. None of that here. And this allows me to put you first, obviously, and not them. So that's kind of different on the media landscape. My second favourite words empower me to tell you the truth about car makers, to say the kinds of things that other motoring journalists in Australia do not say because they may not say them, because they would lose their friggin' jobs if they did. You might think of me as something of a consequence, therefore. Nature, a boring, a vacuum or something. Kind of like Friendly Geordies or Michael West or the Juice Media. Like, these channels exist only because the mainstream media is so impossibly bent over. They've gone 100% Cirque du Soleil, fueled by bad incentives. So if you have ever sniffed that distinct aroma in a car review or the nightly news or anywhere else, but been unable to articulate why and how the mainstream media has, in fact, thrown you under the bus, here's how news became fake news. I just went to YouTube and I searched LDV T60 Australia. My report from five days ago on that is currently number three at the time I researched this story earlier this morning. I'll put a link, uh, possibly once again with all those caveats, up there, dude. 106,000 views in five days, which is a pretty damn good result for me. Like, for some channels that would be a fail, but for me that's pretty good. It's hardly an LDV suck piece either. Like... That report exists because LDV tried to throw an owner named Timothy Rigby under the bus, mainly because Mr Rigby got justifiably grumpy about his LDV dual cab turning into a bucket of rust, and then LDV just denied all liability for its shit material quality. And I'm obviously not trolling for LDV's advertising revenue now, am I? But it seems... Everyone else in the game is. See, I did that report because it is absolutely in the wheelhouse of 
important information that you'd want to know if you were considering buying one. That was my only consideration. A great unknown on this brand has been, what's the likely level of customer support if you experience a legitimate problem with your LDV? My report, which orbits the QCAT case between Mr Rigby and the dealer, and found against the dealer and ordered a full refund, provides a missing brick in the wall on LDV customer support, the better for you to make an informed choice about your next new car, if you're considering one. But when you go to Google and you search for Timothy Rigby LDV T60, it becomes quickly apparent that no other motoring media outlet has touched this story. It was kryptonite, apparently despite its popularity with the YouTube audience. And now you might think that popularity is everything in the media domain, and yeah, it used to be, meaning audience, ratings, unique visitors, click-through rate, watch time. In other words, you and people like you tuning in. But it's not. You and what's in your interest, that got thrown under the bus a long time ago too. And the process is accelerating disgracefully. Average watch time on that LDV video is 9 minutes 49 seconds times 106,000 views is 17,300 hours in total, which is two years of eyeballs cumulatively glued there listening to this account of morally bankrupt LDV conduct. Result, as they used to say in the Sweeney, LDV must be thrilled like I care. In the mainstream motoring media, the number one bad incentive is advertising. It's an insidious conflict of interest, a means of corporate control over what's said editorially. At least, that's what it's evolved into over the past three decades. Imagine a company giving you millions in advertising and you're also reviewing their products. Who do you put first, you in the audience or those fat stacks of cash? To bastardise Brian Johnson, what do you do for money, honey? At the very least, this bilateral reach around would colour what you say. You'd probably tone down your criticisms, such as the question marks over resale reliability and support. You'd probably also simply choose not to report stories that were toxic to those incoming stacks of cash, i.e. bound to land you in hot water with an advertiser or a potential advertiser. Because elsewhere in the building, if you work for a publisher, usually on a higher level with better decor and hotter personal assistance, the advertising sales team is busily trying to slut team editorial out to any potential advertiser via so-called sponsored so-called reviews. And if you're a so-called journalist doing one of these so-called sponsored so-called reviews, it's roughly equivalent to being a fluffer on the set of a pornographic movie, metaphorically, like philosophically. Only an actual fluffer is at least not pretending they're not a fluffer. So that's a point of difference. Meanwhile, you in the audience, you're thinking about perhaps buying an LDV T60. Currently, unless you tune in to me, 
you will not discover that a consumer court in Queensland recently ruled that these vehicles, a specific one of them at least, is made of, quote, poor quality materials. And it took a formal hearing to compel the retailer to honour its legislated consumer law obligations and issue a refund after initially attempting to throw that owner under the bus using a level of frankly unhinged argument that I could not make up with a friggin' gun at my head. But nobody else, like not Costello's cockheads at drive, and no reference to individuals is intended there, not which car, not car's guide, not car expert, no one. Not according to Google, anyway. And Google does know these things. None of them have covered this so much for consumer centricity. Requiescat in pace, dude. <clears throat> Incidentally, I'm not pumping up my own tyres here, not at all. I think it's absolutely flat-out disgraceful that my unique selling proposition, my point of difference, whatever you want to call it, is that I tell you what I really think. And I don't give a shit what car makers think when I do that. I report issues that seem to me to be entertaining, interesting, or relevant to you. It is, in fact, the most tragic indictment of journalism that I can build a brand with just those things, because in my universe, that should be the price of admission, Jesus. A lot of you comment or email me to the effect that I should be rather careful lest I be sued for defamation. Perhaps it's that. The pro tip there, okay? Companies in Shitsville cannot generally sue for defamation, except in an extremely limited number of circumstances, such as having 10 or fewer employees. So me doing this is not especially risky from that point of view, not at all. There's an obscure tort called injurious falsehood that they could use, hypothetically, but the standard of proof there is absurdly high and it's hardly ever proven in court, statistically. So it's not that preventing the others from taking part either. And it's not because I'm some friggin' Woodward Bernstein type. I did not dig at all to find that court ruling, not even for a moment. The principal of a big city law firm, whom I won't name, he just served it up on a platter for me by email. Hate to shatter those illusions, right? But I got an email from a trusted source, a dude I'd corresponded with previously, and I clicked the link he supplied and decided that that's a story. Four hours later, I had a script loaded up into the prompter and I read it down the friggin' barrel, just like I'm doing right now. This must be illusion-shattering day. Like, I write a script when the issues are kind of complex and there are consequences if I get it wrong. And if I know it like the back of my hand and it's not all that risky legally, then I just sit over there and I talk off the top and I read it with the other camera angle, right? Like, I don't read it at all, actually. I just talk over the top, like, here's what I think. As someone who became a journalist kind of late, like, I wasted all that time getting a pesky engineering degree before I caved in to my inner smart-ass, I can tell you that one of the core functions of journalism is to tell the truth. But it's a particular kind of truth, right? It's the unpalatable truth to a particular kind of recipient, generally the unprincipled, powerful, possibly amoral cockhead. They really hate that because that kind of truth 
generally does not set them free. In this case, the truth was about shitbox LDVs and worse corporate conduct. Powerful organisations hate it when their skirt is lifted up like that so that the public can see the fruit and the vegetables flapping in the breeze. That shriveled courgette and the prunes just flapping. It's undignified, but worth it. That's what the term public interest means, okay? Therefore, the very first thing a rich, powerful, unprincipled cockhead wants to do is corrupt the power of the media, the independence of the media, to expose the vegetables in that way. And the easiest way to achieve this here in the automotive sewer is just to throw money at the problem, dude. It's just like a drug dealer. You get the publishers addicted to advertising revenue and then you just threaten to turn off the stream unless they get their clowns under control inside the big top. That's exactly how this works. I had exactly this threat levelled at me when I was features editor of Wheels magazine. I had it happen again when I was a contributor to Channel 7, twice, and on other sundry occasions. And Like, I've had fun. That's not it. This subversion of the media happens on the nightly news and in the mainstream media generally. Like Jerry Harvey, huge advertiser, right? He could therefore probably go out and sponsor the friggin' Taliban or sell the Shitsville Harbour Bridge to the Chinese and throw in the Opera House for all we care in the complete absence of fake news media criticism. And I'm not for a moment suggesting that he's planning to do those things that we know of, I'm pointing to the depth of comment control in play under the big top in the media. In politics, you've got Costello's cockheads, a proper right-wing succubus in an evil symbiotic relationship with every coalition government. Government allows nine to metastasize into Fairfax because it just increases the depth of the succubusery not that that's a word. A case of you suck my bussery and I'll suck yours, dude. And of course, the succubus sweepstakes is a two-horse race, right? With a nonagenarian mutant ninja turtle ahead by a nose. With all the Metro dailies just fluffing the coalition agenda like it's the only game in town. But not quite as hard as those unhinged nightly nutbags on Sky. This really is an informational cancer where the facts don't matter and vested interests do. Any suggestion that we should have a federal ICAC is demonised, for example, mainly because governmental corruption, such as under-the-table dealings with major media organisations, would be exposed and perhaps even held to account. And only the public would want to see that. It leads to things like Gladys Berejiklian and John Barilaro getting away with playing the world's most disingenuous victim cards when they bow out of public life, personal opinion. I use this only because it's the most recent example of the media's betrayal of public trust. Like, more or less Dresden on the morning of February 15, 1945, that's where the trust barometer is, right? <laughs> Might be a bit hot today, bit of smoke in the sky, things of that nature. See, 
Bad incentives in the media depict poor old wronged Gladys as a victim of the evil New South Wales ICAC, when in fact, blind Freddie could observe that she is nothing more than a person of interest in an inquiry by an agency without prosecutorial power. Just ask yourself, dude, if you were in her situation and you were truly innocent, like nobody's in the basement freezer ever, in this situation, at the peak of a pandemic crisis with extreme pressure on the health system, steady hand required on the tiller, would you fall on your sword so easily or would you front this inquiry and be vindicated by virtue of the lack of evidence against you because you're innocent and then shout your integrity from the frigging rooftop? I know I would. I make no determination either way about whether or not the bin chicken is corrupt. Who knows? That's way above my pay grade. But I would rather bow out as a victim than fall in disgrace if it were me and there were in fact a body in the freezer. Talking about me here, okay? Not the worst premiere ever, obviously. Victim card number two. A man Jordan Shanks entertainingly calls Bruz. Somewhat less entertainingly, also the quintessential koala-killing political parasite, personal opinion. Just Google BBC Koala War for the salient details there. Him and the bin chicken, the only two Aussies I know of who hate koalas. Like, that's everything you need to know about that bloke right there. Koala hater. Case closed. Who hates koalas? Come on. I watched his entire nauseating, B-grade, cliché-drenched resignation announcement. Jenny Craig should buy the rights, in my view. The next big diet miracle. The Bruz Resignation Appetite Suppressing System. Watch once, and you'll feel so sick that you will not be able to eat for days. Yes. One of the main reasons Mr. Barillaro gave for resigning was, I'm paraphrasing, that his feelings were hurt by Mr. Shanks, who's an unapologetic left-wing shill YouTube comedian pretending to be a journalist, or a YouTube journalist pretending to be a comedian. I can't decide which. Despite this, and despite him being a vaguely annoying millennial, I kind of like his work. It's a living hell. Anyway... Leader of the Coalition's Koala Hit Squad, the Deputy Premier of Shitsville's most populous state, former Deputy Premier, a joint with eight million people and a half trillion dollar-ish economy, right? And this bloke, Koala Killer Six, is given the responsibility of being the architect of the post-Delta roadmap to freedom. Another Jenny Craig opportunity right there. He got his feelings hurt by a 32-year-old taking the piss out of him on YouTube. And he just couldn't take it anymore, apparently. Coincidentally, on the first business day after the G-spot got vacated. He actually insinuated that the pressure of the defamation case was getting to him, as if he is perversely somehow a victim of his own legal proceedings, which he himself arbitrarily commenced against 32-year-old Shanks, despite having a pandemic to manage and the rest of us here in the public being the ones making the actual fucking sacrifices. Let's not forget that. You could make a case that his action is less about hurt feelings and more about assaulting the freedom of speech by 
forcing YouTube into the position of a publisher and making it therefore responsible for everything creators on the platform say, thereby shutting down dissenting voices such as Mr Shanks or Michael West, etc. And of course, me. To the former deputy koala killer, I would say, dude, it must have been an absolute hell getting picked up by your driver from your home at Rushcutters Bay every day and driven to your publicly funded office in Macquarie Street where you are guaranteed to earn your six-figure salary all throughout the pandemic while plotting the demise of free speech and a 32-year-old smartass. I'm pretty sure the rest of us simply cannot imagine just how tough that really was. Especially if you had it easy, like locked down in one of those Redfin Towers or prohibited from working for the past three months. Fuck's sake, dude. If you wrote that in the script for a new Netflix drama starring that fat bastard from The Sopranos, and I know James Gandolfini died eight years ago. Anyway, if you did that, some wonk from the studio would be straight on the phone and he'd be telling you all to stop smoking crack in the writer's room and perhaps make up something a little more believable. Yet the mainstream media simply ignores these points and merely regurgitates this prepackaged bullshit for the front page or for the 6.30 bulletin on the box, right? And you wonder why the public trust, they, they just don't trust politicians and the so-called fake news mainstream media anymore. Like, is there any doubt? This whole club koala killer departure fiasco could not possibly have more to do with the ICAC inquiry into Berejiklian's alleged corruption and the fact that Barilaro is probably going to be called as a witness and what might flow from that now, could it? on the balance of probabilities, like, just speculating. And again, easy for koala-killing bras to bow out as a somewhat sooky, tired and downtrodden, worn-out hero of the people, kicked in the nuts by a vile millennial asshole before ICAC puts him under the microscope, perhaps. Might be hard to do that afterwards. I'm speculating again, obviously. This reeks of being too high-profile, carefully timed tactical departures, and no one in the media is calling them on it. You have to go to somewhere like pedestrian.tv for headlines like, Happy Monday, John Barilaro has quit as New South Wales Deputy Premier. Or, people are putting their blazers out for Gladys, which is wild, given that ICAC inquiry. Respect, dudes. All I can say at this point is, thank Christ, Jesus himself has seen fit to anoint a squeaky clean, ultra-conservative, pro-Trump, early millennial god-botherer, whom I will henceforth call Dominatrix Requiescat in Pace Espiritus Sancti, parrothead, into the top job at Macquarie Street. Or Dom Pipi, as he's probably not known by his friends, in the rap community. He's the perfect successor. Just what we need at this critical time to continue the tone. An anti-abortion, anti-same-sex marriage, devout, friend-in-the-sky type who doesn't believe that priests should be legally obliged to break the confessional and report cases of abuse in the 21st century after carefully considering the track record of the clergy 
on that one. Let's be kind. That's all somewhat out of step with mainstream Australian community values and expectations. The pro tips on that, number one. According to a 2010 survey by the Medical Journal of Australia, 87% of respondents believe that abortion should be lawful in the first trimester. Number two, in the 2017 non-binding plebiscite into same-sex marriage, 61.6% of respondents voted yes. So there's that. Number three, according to the 2016 census, the largest single religious category in the nation was none at 30.1% of the population, followed by Protestant at 23.1%, with the Catholics in third, trailing by a narrow margin. Three for three there on being in touch with the people, Dom Pipi. Way to go, new dude. Hashtag respect. Therefore, I hardly categorise myself as some voice in the wilderness. When I say I'm happy for anyone to believe whatever they want privately, like I really am, it can be up is down if you want, or gravity can be just a theory, like knock yourself out. Personally, I pray every night to George friggin' Carlin who responds about as often as Jesus did, but is funnier and somewhat more grounded. But I really don't want what I would categorise as that 12th century woo-woo, personal opinion, informing critical decisions on things like the environment or pandemic preparedness, etc. These personal conversations with the various all-powerful alleged beings who need no evidence to substantiate their existence and need to be, at the very least, robustly compartmentalised and they can have no place in informing public policy least in my view. Dom Pepe is, and this is also perfect, just perfect. He's a former lawyer who became a politician and says that questioning man-made climate change is not scepticism. He says he's pro-free speech, so I know he won't mind at all what I've said so far, or when I say, sir, congratulations and welcome to the former G-spot. Fringe journalists and comedians everywhere are thrilled to have someone of your unique calibre and distinct pedigree aboard. And I'm confident you have exactly what it takes to build on the excellent foundations laid by those two koala-killing sooks who just fucked off to front ICAC at short notice. It is, however, to me rather a shame that renowned car-hating genius planning minister Rob Stokes did not get the big gig, personal opinion. I would really have enjoyed to see that, perhaps even more than you, sir.